Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Today, I've got something super special for you because it involves a fossil site that is near and dear to my heart, amazing, and in a place where I would never expect there to be a fossil site. I am talking about the gray fossil site of eastern Tennessee. It's a unique area. It's got a cool museum you should all go check out if you ever find yourself in that area. And it's preserved an era of Earth's history that is in desperate need of more scrutiny because it's pretty much what was going on in the flora and fauna of North America right before the glaciers hit. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Liz Hermson. She's a paleobotanist who has a particular affinity for plant form and function, and she's putting it to great use at the Gray Fossil Site. But first, I want to tell you about my friends over at Soltech Solutions. Look, if you're like me, you move around a lot and not every apartment or house is going to have the best natural lighting for your plants. And that is why I turn to LED lights. And Soltech Solutions offers some of the best I have come across. They take both function and aesthetics into consideration and have produced high-quality photosynthetic plant lights that give off a warm white glow. These aren't going to blind you or make you sit in harsh lighting while your plants are getting all of the benefit. And best of all, these can grow plants. I've been germinating seeds with mine over the last couple of weeks and it is fantastic. I am so pleased with these. And because they're LEDs, they last for an incredibly long time. For instance, the Aspect Pendant Light can last up to 15 years. Finally, we can be proud of the lights we're using to grow our plants. They've become a fixture in our home. And they offer a variety of plant lights, from track lights to pendants and even just the bulbs if you've got your own fixture. And best of all, they offer free shipping and a five-year warranty on your purchase. So check out Soltech Solutions today and enter the discount code INDEFENSIVEPLANTS15 at checkout. That's INDEFENSIVEPLANTS, one word, 15 at checkout, and you'll get 15% off your order. All right, everyone, let's just get on with this episode. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Liz Hermson. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Liz Hermson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you today, but first, how about we start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. All right. Uh, my name is Elizabeth Hermson, or I go by Liz. Uh, I currently work at the Paleontological Research Institution in Ithaca, New York. So it's a small nonprofit, and uh, it also has an attached museum, the Museum of the Earth, as well as a nature center, Cayuga Nature Center. Oh, nice. Um, so my job title is research scientist, and um, I do do some research for my work, but lately I also do a lot of outreach type activities. So right now, one of my big ones is helping to build a website called Earth at Home. Nice. Um, which is about the geology of the United States. Very cool. And so what brought you down this route? I mean, what got you interested in geology and paleontology? I mean, were you sort of like a rock kid growing up or a nature kid and just kind of combined, uh, you know, the, the deep past with your present interests? You know, I was really interested in dinosaurs as a kid, <laughs> even very young. Um, I'm originally from Wisconsin. Okay. But uh, just before I started elementary school, we moved to Colorado and um so, of course, there's a very nice uh, natural history museum there with great dinosaurs. Hmm. And then when we moved to southern Colorado, I could actually collect fossils of my own. 
Nice. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> that's so cool. Uh, yeah, so I got into plants a little bit more when I was older. Uh, I think one of the, the big things that got me thinking a little bit more about plants was in high school, uh, our biology teacher had us do a herbarium project where we went out. So at that time, I should say we had moved back to Wisconsin. So <laughs> I was living in northern Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, back and forth. So um, yes, we did this herbarium project. And we lived in an area with a, a lot of woods. And so we could go out and collect plants, get points for getting new uh, species, genera, and families. So pretty soon I could identify a lot of the plants around my house. And I thought this was really neat. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I kind of had these two interests and I combined them when I went to college. And I, I uh, uh, focused mo uh, both on botany and geology as an undergrad. Hmm. That's fun. I mean, it's even if you're studying living floras, geology and botany go hand in hand. But what's even mm -hmm. more interesting is when you go back in deep time, geology can give us a lot of indication as to what the flora was doing at the time via fossils, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's uh, Yeah, I can. So, I mean, there are a lot of things you can do with fossils. Um, obviously, they can tell you a lot about an environment, whether it's aquatic, uh, whether it's a drier environment. You can use them to estimate uh, paleoclimate parameters. Mm. And, of course... From my perspective, I mostly work on things like uh, plant systematics and plant structure. So I'm looking more at the evolution of plants than necessarily about environmental factors. Interesting. And what made you kind of focus in on that aspect of paleobotany? If you can even put a finger on it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not sure I can put a finger on it. Um, I guess one thing I, I do... I guess, like about, about taking this approach to paleobotany is that I'm always kind of working on different things. Hmm. And I, I do like to delve into different subjects and, you know, really get focused on them and work on them. And then you can kind of move on to the next thing and leave the old thing behind. <laughs> so um, in paleobotany in general, I think, and particularly in this type of paleobotany, you really have to be kind of versatile and, um, work on the material that's available. So even people who maybe have a focus group to work on, uh, like say they work on conifers or they work on cycads, probably have papers in other areas of plants mm. because it's just the way the field is. Yeah, I'm sure the vagaries of what's available through either your own discoveries or going through the shelves of a museum collection, you know, you, yeah, it makes sense. You'd kind of have to just kind of go with the flow, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so the reason we connected today was because of a unique site in eastern Tennessee. I did not know it existed. In fact, I kind of had written off much of the Appalachian Mountains and the surrounding areas as devoid of fossil evidence. But boy, was I proven wrong during my first tour of the Gray Fossil Site. So how did you come to find this place? Um, actually, as I recall, a friend of mine who is also a paleontologist contacted me and said they, they needed somebody to work on the plants or were looking for somebody who could look at the flora of the site. So that's actually how I um, first, I guess, learned about the site. I didn't really know anything about it. Um, I'm trying to remember when I first went down there, maybe 2016. Okay. Fairly recent. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago. And it's, again, so strange because generally speaking, and I could be really off base, but as just a fossil 
you know, enthusiast, I guess you could call me, the area around there isn't really known for producing fossils, right? Or, or at least a lot of southern Appalachia really isn't known for fossiliferous layers. Or am I way off? Um, <laughs> yes and no. What, okay. it's, what that region, the, the general region is known for is much older fossils. Oh, interesting. So the, the plant fossils you tend to find in, in places like Tennessee tend to be from the Carboniferous. Ooh. So I guess you're talking maybe 300 million years ago. Um, I apologize. I keep the relative ages in my mind Quite very right. well, but not necessarily the numerical ones, <laughs> but <laughs> very old. Yes. Um, so these are the, the types of plants that were in these uh, Paleozoic coal swamps. And they were the coal forming plants in that region. Okay. So these are things like the giant lycophyte trees, the scale trees, or the giant horsetail type plants. So things that would be very alien to us today. Okay. So gray is unusual because of its youth, <laughs> at least for that region. <laughs> right. And youth is a relative term in geology, I'm coming to find. <laughs> yes. Yes. So in geological terms, this is very young. In um human terms it's still very old <laughs> so where does gray sort of fall out on the eras of earth's history so uh gray is a neogene fossil site and it's in an epoch called the pliocene okay. or at least that's the most recent epoch uh estimate so that would be i i think the um most recent numerical age range given for it is maybe 4.5 to 4.9 billion years old. Oh, okay. So yeah, still ancient, but by no means like dinosaurs or Carboniferous era time spans <laughs> <No>. here. <laughs> no, no, no. Much younger. <laughs> and I don't know how much you know of the history of the site, and I apologize, but like, it, remember I, I was talking to one of the paleontologists there and they said it was totally discovered on accident like there was some road construction that was going to happen and they pulled up what looked like ivory and then they were like we need to look deeper yeah that's my understanding is that it was discovered during road construction i think around the year 2000 hmm. and uh that somebody probably hit some type of bone with heavy equipment <laughs> oops and then they go oh yeah it happens <laughs> please don't be human please don't be human please don't be human <laughs> So, I mean, the lucky thing, though, is that uh, they preserved the site. Yeah. You know, they found it and, and they did go through the steps to preserve it. So we still have it. That is excellent. Anytime you can kind of rally politicians around something like that is just very special. And, and to devote, you know, a whole museum, which is no small task to showcasing what's going on there. And if you look it up, if you follow them on social media, which everyone should you know, they're known for their tapirs. They're known for their rhinoceroses and, you know, potentially a large elephant type organism that's being placed together. But to me, the most exciting thing, of course, because I'm on plant nut, was the degree of preservation in the flora of the site. It's wild to see what's in those drawers. And so what about the site lended so well to just the excellent preservation of everything from plants to animals I should mention there was a red panda skeleton discovered there, which is pretty cool, too. Yeah, so I don't know about the specifics of maybe the chemistry of the site. Mm -hmm. um, the particulars of just kind of generally why it's preserved there 
is because there's a sort of carbonate bedrock in the area. And it's thought that millions of years ago, a sinkhole formed in this bedrock. And then that sinkhole at least partially filled with water. So you basically had a lake or pond environment in which, you know, if, if you want to preserve fossils, you need a basin or some sort of depression for sediment to accumulate in. So this de deposit formed in, in this lake or pond. Hmm. So things were either dying in there or with plants. Of course, plants are always shedding parts, right? <laughs> yeah. Pes <laughs> pesky little critters yeah, there. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, with, I mean, it's even animals are usually found in pieces, but plants, especially, yeah. you know, you got little fruits, little seeds, little leaves. So they're probably shedding parts into the water. Um, as they're living around there, maybe things are being washed into the water and that's how they're being preserved. And, um, the water chemistry must be such that they're not decaying where they're falling, either that or, or sediments covering them quickly enough that they're not decaying. Exciting. So sort of, you know, a perfect storm of a lot of luck, you know, right place, right time, and just perfect conditions in some instances. Yeah. Everything about this site is really locked that it formed in the first place <laughs> that it was found. You think of, you know, the entire area of Tennessee where you could build a road and <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the site's probably, I mean, it's a very small area, right. In sure. general. So just the fact that you'd accidentally locate it is, is quite impressive. Yeah. It's super exciting. And again, anyone that's in that area must go visit this. It is a must see, but for you as a paleobotanist, someone calls you and tells you, Hey, we need a paleobotanist's perspective on this. Where do you begin? I mean, I know there was a, probably a lot of excavation already and things were probably placed aside. Like we just need to wait till someone with that expertise comes here. But for you, how did it all start? You know, it seems overwhelming enough to try to get your handle on a flora that's living today. How do you do that with bits and pieces and fragments of rock and, and remains? Well, I mean, first of all, I have to give credit to my predecessors. <laughs> there were some people who worked on the site before me. Um, both there is a, a pollen and spore, uh, flora at the site. Wow. So work was done on that. Nice. And there was also some work done previously on the fruit and seed flora. So I think there are about five papers that had been published before cool. I started working on it. Um, and so as part of that, people had also gone through and kind of hypothesized about, uh, the identities of some of the structures that were in the site. Hmm. So. I did have a foundation to work on. It wasn't like I was working from nothing. That's good. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the way I kind of dipped my toe in at first is, is some things had preliminary identifications on them. So start with, with those couple of, of things first. Um, the other thing about a site, particularly of this age, is that most of the things that are preserved are probably still going to be living, you know, living genera at least. So you can look a lot at the modern flora and work on modern plants to try to identify, you know, the fruit, seeds, and other structures at the site. So that does make it a little bit easier. Hmm. And then the other thing is, how would I put this? Uh, there are other neogene localities in the world yeah. that have somewhat similar preservation. Okay. And particularly in places like Europe, there are extensive brown coal deposits. There are huge floras associated with those. Hmm. And these have great monographs done on them. So it's another good place to look for 
comparisons to gray fossil sites. That's really neat to hear sort of the behind the scenes process of how a scientist such as yourself starts to think about this stuff. I mean, it's another thing to really dive in deep, but there's a lot to unpack in what you just said there in the idea that, A, yes, credit where credit is due. There's a lot of different specialties. So even just looking at spores and pollen, that's its own level of expertise. But the other part of it is looking at what is already in the modern flora. And the reason I respect paleobotanists so much is the fact that you have to be a, you know, have a lot of familiarity and expertise in modern plants, plants that are alive and well today, and be able to compare that to often uh, distorted images in rocks, I guess is (laughs) a a simple way of putting it. But even beyond that is, you know, 4.5 million years is an insanely long amount of time. But to find similarities in modern day flora of this region is wild. I think when one drawer was open, I remember seeing hickory nuts, acorns, <laughs> and what looked like a post oak leaf. And my jaw just hit the floor because you're like, how have these species been here for so long and probably have a longer history than that? Yeah. You know, from my perspective, I'm like, of course they'd be there. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it's a totally different, I guess, perspective to look at it because I'm always like, oh, this stuff is young. It'll still be here. I love it. I love it. And yeah, I guess when you think of like the length and longevity of a species, you really do have to start spanning out beyond even hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, some give or take, right? For different species. But yeah, for something Mm -hmm. like plants, millions is still like, oh yeah, we, we were doing things. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it it might be hard to put it to species necessarily, but at least genera, sure. Yeah. Easily. And what's neat to think, too, is the way evolution can, or at least hypothetically, can happen in sort of these fits and spurts or just sort of this long, gradual process. Yeah. A a leaf of what looks like something we see today. I mean, we see enough cryptic diversity in modern floras where, yeah, these two species look almost identical, but you look at them genetically, they're vastly different things. I'm sure that what you're seeing on face value can be familiar, but who knows, right? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the sort of pitfalls of being a paleontologist. <laughs> we always have very limited evidence. So, you know, when they're, you're looking at animals, I always talk about, you know, you have bones, you have shells, you're missing a lot of the soft part anatomy with plants. You're often missing a lot too. And again, a lot of it's because they tend to be preserved in pieces. Mm. Um, and then some of the structures are also pretty ephemeral. So things like flowers, I mean, they occur in the fossil record, but I wouldn't necessarily expect to find a flower at gray fossil site given the preservation. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's infinitely more leaves and wood and fragments of sticks available than there are flowers and, you know, flowers are already delicate structures, but when it came to what you were actually trying to do with this, I mean, what kind of questions were you trying to answer yourself for your own scientific interest? Well, I guess at first I was just trying to figure out, uh, I don't know how you put it, the lay of the land. Sure. What's there, what's been described, what's left to describe. Um, so at first I took a lot out of loan of material that I worked on with students. And this material had originally been, I guess, uh, how would I put it? It was hypothesized maybe to have affinities to the sweetleaf family, Simplocaceae. Hmm. Okay. So there are different types of structures preserved at the site, right? Mm-hmm. Fruits, seeds, and the third kind of common structure, reproductive structure, is an endocarp, which would be the inner hard fruit wall of a drupe. 
So uh, Simple Casey or Sweet Leaf family have droops, and there are actually a lot of studies that have been done on their endocarps. Hmm. Yeah. That's lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love those esoteric, you're like, actually, we hit a, a gold mine of data. <laughs> right, right. So there's a lot of information on the modern endocarps. It turns out there are a lot of information on fossil endocarps, too, and a lot of this comes from European floras. Hmm. Uh, so these, these neogene European floras. Um, so once we began looking at the details of these structures, it was like, yeah, they look kind of like this family, but there are some real differences. Hmm. Um, and they were minor things. It's like, does the base of the endocarp have a pit or a point? You know, does the, the center of it have one canal or two canals? But when you kind of added it all up, it didn't quite fit. Hmm. So for that project, um, we ended up putting the fossils into a new genus. Wow. Because we just weren't sure. So <laughs> for the Pliocene and how young the material is, I thought that was a little bit unusual. And this was a situation too where, I mean, we were looking at Simple Casey because, you know, that that fit. But we also, uh, you know, I had the students page through monographs just fossil monographs of similar floras to look and see if they found anything similar. No, <laughs> but <laughs> it just shows the kind of legwork that's yeah. uh, sometimes involved in doing this. It's just, you know, kind of going to the library or getting online and looking for papers and browsing and, and saying, well, what kind of pops out? I really love that inside look because it can be so hard to find a good key for certain genera today. And I mean, there's living examples you can draw on. And so to think that one fortunately exists where you can kind of look at different features and say, okay, this isn't really nailing that, but also the insight into like, okay, what is different enough in paleobotanical findings to warrant a new description of a genus, so to speak. But then it opens up a bunch of new questions is like, okay, how much has changed? Why has it changed? And what could be some big sort of explanatory ways of looking at why maybe a species or a new genus potentially winked out? And we don't see examples of it today. I mean, we have some plocos in the Southeast today, but if it's different enough, something was going on there. Right. And I mean, the other, the other thing that, that's a possibility is this is something that's still alive. Hmm. And so it is an endocarp of something that's alive and nobody's just really studied that endocarp. You know, there's a, a lot of the world's flora isn't necessarily described in much detail. <laughs> yeah, that is an unfortunate fact. <laughs> right. And then when you're dealing with weird structures like this, I mean, I guess if you look at the world from a, a modern botanical perspective and you want to write a description unless you want to sit down and do a lot of work, if, if, like if you're doing a, a major flora or something, it's easiest to pick out the features that are most identifiable first, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, what are the flower parts? How many whorls are there? You, you know, what color is it? What are the basic structures of the leaves? To go through and try to clean up the fruits and look at the endocarps is a lot more work. Wow. So it's probably not something that someone's going to do just part of a you know a major descriptive work for a region or something huh yeah honestly hadn't really thought about that that is really awesome insights because i mean even 
when I'm trying to use keys, trying to do a botanical survey of an area, I'm looking for the tells, the easy to pick out of a lineup or like if I have a hand lens, what's the quickest thing I can look at? And yeah, I can imagine, you know, it takes a certain level of patience and attention to detail to even write a description that's thorough enough. But yeah, what what is left out that could be very helpful when all you're dealing with are fragments of bits and pieces of something that may or may not exist today? Mm-hmm. Right. So then as a paleobotanist, you may end up having to do a lot of your own legwork on the modern plants if you really want to figure things out. Wow. Mad respect. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and and in a way, I'm sure that like there's some nights where you're just like, I, what am I doing? But then when you do get <laughs> to make some forward progress on something potentially new or even an understanding of something that's still around today, that is a milestone that's got to feel so good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, you mentioned there was some other legwork done. Um, you know, at least I saw when I visited back in probably 2017, 2018, there was at least a family slash general list. And mm-hmm. the thing that struck me most is, yeah, a lot of this is still in Eastern Tennessee today, but a lot of it also wasn't. I mean, for all intents and purposes, mm-hmm. unless someone's really pushing it, there was evidence of palms there, but today I don't go into Eastern Tennessee expecting to see palms, right? I mean, there's some changes mm-hmm. that have happened in 4.5 million years. Right. Um, so I think probably the most interesting change or the one that gets talked about a lot in relation to the red panda too, <laughs> right. is that there are things that occur on other continents that don't occur in Eastern North America today. Hmm. Um. So some of the things that have been described from the flora uh, in some of these, again, were described before I started on the project are cinnamonium, which is uh, in the moonseed family. Okay. And, and that's an Asian genus. Uh, there were two species of vitus that were described and considered most comparable to Asian species. Wow. Uh, I think the hickory that has been described from the site was compared to an extinct hickory from Europe. Wow. And then I published with another student, uh, Coralopsis, the winter hazel, which is another Asian genus. So there are a number of these things that have gone extinct in North America. And I should mention Sargentodoxa, which is another vine, has been reported from the site and is another Asian genus. That one's not described yet. So yeah, there, there's this whole sort of cohort of genera, and there's some kind of echo in the animals as well uh, that has connection to Asia or Eurasia hmm. um, and isn't in North America anymore. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that kind of goes back to another question I had for you is like how comparable or how useful is the work that comes out of neogene deposits in Europe? And And that to me sounds like a really great example of that is this idea of comparing floras through time. And I, I recently had someone on, uh, Dr. Anthony Melton, that talked about that disjunction between continents. And one of the things he repeated was, you know, these extinction events didn't happen one time, right? This was things that were mm-hmm. probably shared among continents for a while, and then different geologic events, cataclysms, whatever you want to call it, wiped them out piecemeal. It's a sweepstakes. Like, I think it's easy to make up good stories that sound like, well, and then the asteroid hit and now we see what we see today. But it, it, it geology and, and deep time tell you that things happen. Stochasticity is the law more than anything else, right? 
Yeah. So, I mean, there, there was a lot of connection amongst the continents, definitely um, earlier in the Cenozoic. Hmm. So the Cenozoic is the whole time period after the dinosaurs died. In uh, very early on, uh, the world was a lot warmer. We didn't have glaciation mm. at the Northern Poles. And also, uh, how would I put this? The North Atlantic hadn't spread quite as much. So North America and Europe were closer together. Okay. And uh, there was this exchange of taxa amongst Eurasia and North America, both over the northern part of the Pacific and also over the northern part of the Atlantic. Hmm. And so as time goes on through the Cenozoic, there is global cooling. There's a shift in the position of the continents, and then finally you get glaciation. And in places like North America, you also have drying of the continental interior and uplift of mountains. And so all of this creates barriers to movements. And so we see the remnants of kind of these connected floras in different parts of the world. And they're not all the same, but right. they do show these connections. Yeah. I mean, I think you said echoes and I think that is one of the best ways to describe it is like, yeah, there's remnants there and we can kind of hear it, but the picture's not complete. And, you know, it's funny because I was just looking at a Coralopsis earlier this week and thinking like, oh man, I wish this was a native, but it sounds like at one point <laughs> North America might've had its own representative. That's pretty cool. Right. Yeah. And I mean, this is, this is true for other plants. Like I said, we, we do see this, um, I guess, Asian element in the flora that for whatever reason, went extinct between, you know, almost 5 million years ago and today. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to think about what isn't in the fossil record too. Right. And and that's the other part of it is just how rare fossilization is and what are we missing? Like how much was here and we just we will never know. <laughs> Well, this is one of the things that makes gray fossil site exciting um, is that there aren't a lot of fossil sites like this in hmm. this age range. So Neogene, so about 23 million years ago to 2.6 million years ago, when you're sort of getting a more modern flora, there are not a lot of paleobotanical sites hmm. that preserve what we call macrofossils. So leaves, uh, fruit, seeds, that type of thing. So these are few and far between, especially when you get off the Gulf Coast. Oh. And so we don't actually have a lot of direct information for what's going on during this time period in Eastern North America. Huh. And I'm guessing the reason like, that it's exciting to have this site and the frustrating part of not having a lot of them is that like this is, really is the story of how our modern flora, or at least a big chapter in how our modern flora sort of came to be, I guess, or is that too simple to think about it that way? <laughs> no, I think it is an appropriate way to think about it. Hmm. You know, this, this is the flora. I mean, it's still a, a few million years off, but, you know, you're almost on the cusp of, cusp of the Pleistocene where you're getting ice ages and glaciation, and that probably did have a lot of effect on the flora, and it probably did cause extinctions. So you're kind of seeing, you know, the last snapshots that you're going to get before some major climatic changes take place in North America. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a really great point to bring up is this time period in which these fossils were formed was pre-glacial. And when you think of like where we find plants today and the, the talks of refugia, what what helped plants recolonize northern North America after the glaciers receded? I mean, yeah, that was a big upset to what was here. And so it's almost like you had a set of players. The glaciers happened in North America and whatever was left was what was able to kind of a survive it and make its way back up there. That's that's a really interesting sort of time period to be just on the cusp of because we do have a lot of at least in the north aspects of North America from what I've seen a, a decent resolution from bog deposits of like what kind of happened afterwards. Mhm. Right. Right. So we do kind of have some idea of what's going on in the place to see because yeah, you can get, you know, maybe lake sediments or something. Look at the pollen flora. You might even find, and even preserved vertebrates, you might find a lot of plant material. Hmm. So, you know, we can look at these younger floras and we probably do have better resolution for them. But for part of this time period, we're lacking a lot of information. Yeah. Well, that's really exciting. I'm, I'm stoked you actually got to work on something <laughs> that can fill in some blank, ma- major blanks in North America. But going back to what you mentioned in your early days, someone that loved to collect fossils and look at this stuff, and I'm sure that passion has not left you. Which of the paleobotanical fossils you looked at or, or groups of fossils you looked at at the Gray Fossil Site excited you the most? Is there ones that really just kind of tickled the child in you that that's there and just went like, this is why I do what I do? You know, I don't know if I look at things that way. Interesting. I get really excited about them, especially when I I figure out like little puzzles or things I couldn't identify Hmm. and and I figured it out. So, um, boy, there are these fossils at the site. It's hard to explain what they even look like. They look like little clumps of not really spears, but they're almost like little rectangular things and they have circles on top and they're just very strange. They're all very irregular kind of growths. And um, I didn't know what they were Hmm. for a long time. I had no idea. Just like, what is this? I kept thinking galls. Maybe they're oak galls. Okay. There's something really strange. So I'd go through, you know, I'd sit on my computer, look for pictures of galls look for pictures of oak calls, nothing fit, nothing fit. <laughs> then one day I had I'd taken out a loan from Gray Fossil Site to photograph a bunch of stuff just to kind of build my own photo library of things. So, you know, a, one thing that, that taking pictures does, and I, I like to take pictures of fossil specimens, is it really gets you looking at things. Mm. You know, you can sit there and look under the microscope and, and examine them. But when you take a picture, you have to line it up and you're, you're really focused on what's going on. Um, so I, I was kind of taking pictures and I'm looking at this thing again and it's just like, what is this? So I decided to type in something like oak fungus. Oh. And it, it looks like a wood fungus. Huh. So, <laughs> so that was interesting. And I saw something in a paper from a fossil flora in Asia that looks very similar to this. Wow. Um, and it, I don't think it was identified. So huh. that got me excited because I was like, wow, I know what this is. <laughs> that's um, awesome. So that's usually when I get excited about something. Uh, another thing that I got excited about. Uh, so recently I, I did a, a study on passiflora seeds. So nice. passion flower. 
And this is something that was really rare in the fossil record. Um, so I was sorting through seeds and found them. And I was really excited about that because it was just like, you know, this is something, this is something you don't see. Right. So, yeah. That's cool. That's awesome. I, I love hearing what makes scientists tick because, you know, there's a reason you get up and do it. It's not the easiest career and it certainly takes a lot of hours to be good at what you do and a lot of, of input early on in education to get to where you are. And just to know what keeps that motor running is it's fun. It's a really interesting insight into the, what, what drives this process. So I appreciate that. And yeah, having a different perspective on it is neat. I mean, it's, it's how we all operate, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so what excites you moving forward? I mean, you're obviously still working and, and getting curious about the world. What, what do you hope to tackle next? If that's uh, even possible to answer. <laughs> Well, it is because there's a ton of material. Yes. Uh, so the problem is there's just so much that I can tackle. <laughs> so right now I'm actually trying to finish up a second Passiflora manuscript. Nice. So there appears to be a second species of Passiflora at the site. And so passion flowers are a huge genus, right? Yeah. Over 500 species. They're mostly in the tropical tropics, especially tropical South America. And um, there are a number of different subgenera, and the two seeds from Gray Fossil Site are in different subgenera. Wow. And the first one I described looks a lot like the hardy passion flower. So the, the passion flower incarnata, which is native to Eastern North America mm -hmm. and fairly cold tolerant um, to the point that I've been able to grow it up here in New York and nice. it overwinters. Whoa. <laughs> so, Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's in a sheltered spot. I'm hoping Still, it survives this winter. Yeah. Pretty big zone shift there. Yeah. So uh, so the second one, I'm not sure. There is a member of this group that is also widespread in Eastern North America, but I don't think the seeds look so much like that species. Talking Ludia so I'm here? Kind of, hmm? Talking Ludia? Yeah. Ludia. Okay. So I'm wondering if it's got some relationship to Mexico or Central America. Ooh, that's exciting. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, hey, if you figure it out, let us know. You're welcome back on to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there's that. There's uh, some prickly ash seeds that uh, I've been working on and I need to get back to. So there are two species. Of, this is Xanthoxylum. It's a genus in the citrus family. Um, so one of them looks like a North American native that actually has its major center distribution a little bit north of Gray Fossil Site, which is kind of interesting today. Hmm. Okay. Uh, the second one is very rare at the site. So the common one is, is the modern North American one. The second one, there are only a few of these seeds, and it looks like it might be related to an Asian species. Wow. So that second one, I'm still... You know, I need to do more work on that to confirm it. But just based on the very preliminary work I've done, it's like, it looks kind of like an Asian species. So it'd be an interesting addition. I mean, I think the North American one is interesting as yeah. well. But <laughs> That's awesome. Yet another example of uh, survival and extinction. Right. Wow. Right. So, I mean, there's just, I don't know. There's a, there's a ton of material. <laughs> yeah, I want to do the fungus. Somebody needs to work on the oaks. 
which that I mean, if you've been there, you know how many acorns there are at the site. Yeah. So that that's a big <laughs> undertaking. Drawers worth. <laughs> but it, again, it's yes. so cool to for someone to pull out a four point five plus or minus million year old acorn and go. I recognize that. <laughs> it's like just goosebumps, I guess. Uh, again, I, I know it's relatively recent geologically, but wow, it's just so cool. Yes. So, so with that in mind, if people want to learn more about your work, learn more about publications that are on the horizon, where do you recommend they go looking to find out more? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to learn about my work, I mean, I do have a personal website, which is occasionally updated. Um, <laughs> but I also have a ResearchGate profile, a Google Google Scholar profile, and a staff web page on PRI's website. Perfect. So it's PRIweb.org is where my staff page is. And that links to these other pages. Um, but yeah, nothing too fancy. And of course, uh, I think Ray Fossil site does have a web page that, that has the um, flora and fauna now as well. Awesome. Well, I'll put up links to all those to save people the trouble. But Dr. Hermson, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, provide insights into the site. Tell us about an era of Earth's history that's crying for deeper understanding. And uh, thanks for putting in the time and effort to try to understand it. That's really appreciated. And I speak for everyone when I say for thanks for telling us about it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Of course. Well, <laughs> hang in there, stay healthy and keep up the amazing work. All right. Thank you. Cheers. All right. Amazing stuff. I thank Dr. Hermson for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us and give us insights into a chapter of North American floristic history that is in desperate need of study. It's pretty cool thinking about deep time and how much can change in what we consider relatively short or relatively long time periods. Of course, all of the relevant links are in the show notes for this episode over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast, as well as links to our sponsor, Soltech Solutions. Consider picking up a beautiful light and putting in that promo code indefensiveplants15 at checkout to get a discount and help support the show at the same time. You can also pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch and stickers, as well as become a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. It really helps make sure this show can continue to happen each and every week. But that is it for me this week. Thank you all for listening. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.